Hello, and welcome to the Overland Journal podcast. I am your host, Scott Brady, and for today's guest, we have Nick Dimbleby. Nick was actually on my very first list of dream guests for the Overland Journal podcast. Nick is a three-decade-long photographer for Land Rover and other premium manufacturers. Nick participated in the last four years of the Camel Trophy, uh, and he has traveled to over 80 countries in his explorations of the world. Nick is a consummate professional. Um, He is renowned for his photographic work and video work. So there's a lot of insights that are gained from that, both as a photographer and as a traveler. Uh, We get to talk about Nick's vintage Land Rovers as well. And we have the conversation in Dubai in the UAE. Nick and I had just been traveling together in the Arabian desert. So please enjoy my conversation with Nick Dimbleby. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. Nick, thank yeah. you so much for being on the podcast today. I I have to say that I have long admired your work and there are so many in the industry that are familiar with your work and they may not know you as an individual. So I'm so grateful that we can take the time today to talk about not only you as a creative, but as an adventure traveler yourself and as a Land Rover enthusiast, we got a chance to talk in the car today uh, as we were driving the 130, the new Defender 130 uh, from the desert into Dubai here. And we got a chance to, you have a a wide and varied story, which I think is, (laughs) is so, it's so fascinating. I think we should start off by kind of talking about why we're both here. Uh, which is the new Land Rover Defender 130. Absolutely, yeah. And and have you had um, any personal insights or thoughts that you've come to on the vehicle? Well, I think the first thing is I think it's great. I love yeah. it. It really is. Um, yeah. it, it feels like a the absolutely perfect Defender now, mm-hmm. I think, with that extra load space at the back. The car just feels right. And I think one of the things that is interesting photographing it is the proportions you know now it looks very much like you know the sort of the long wheelbase land rover going back way back to the sort of the 107s uh back to series one that sort of uh that sort of you know four or well five five seats in the middle and then obviously you've got the load space at the back so um yeah for me i noticed that when I think about the classic Defender that I drive, it does have quite a bit of body aft of the rear axle. And this new 130 is more reminiscent of that. And I actually think that of, of all of the current model Land Rovers, this is the most appropriate for travel. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. you still have the same wheelbase as the 110. Uh, so it's not too long. It's just right. It's, uh, you know, it's the right porridge uh, for travel. Uh, but then you've got an extra 13 inches 
of space aft of that rear axle for additional equipment. And one of the things that I liked about the vehicles that I was driving yesterday is it's actually the five seat variant. Uh-huh. Uh, so you end up with that flat load floor Absolutely. in the rear. And have you noticed anything really different about driving it? No, I thought I was going to feel like it was longer, but actually, um, yeah, it feels it's you know you're looking forward. It's it's, yeah. it's uh, it looks like the sort of the, the normal sort of uh, new Defender. I guess the interesting thing is here uh, is everything's a lot bigger, mm. same as it is in the US. Obviously, sure. in the UK, we're a little bit more pressed for space. So I'm interested to see sense. how how it works in parking spaces and things like that. But that's a um, good point. That's a good point. When in the US, it's it's a right-sized vehicle. It's a competitor to the Yukon and the and the Denali now, and it, I think it's going to be well suited for. I think it's going to be very well suited for towing. Yeah, um, sure. And of course, the embargo will have lifted by the time this goes live. But there's going to be a V8 variant of the Defender yeah. Yeah. 130 as well, which I think will be very popular for towing for people who carry yes. a lot more equipment. Um, although personally, I think that the inline six is with the turbo is just a fantastic it's engine. A great engine isn't it? And we, we saw that in the dunes yesterday. Yeah. Um, the vehicle power. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes plenty of power. Absolutely. And Good the job. fact that it's independent front and rear suspension in the dunes, I think they do really well yeah the car i was actually really surprised at how amazing it is in the dunes actually yes because we had the the mud terrain tires on so um, which is usually a challenge a little bit of a challenge but obviously with the right tire pressures which uh, we obviously aired down before we Mm -hmm. headed out and yeah you've got the sand mode on the uh, terrain response system which of course gives you that that increased pickup initially and also optimizes all the uh, all the different traction uh, aids that you get yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, it really worked. The, the weakest link is the driver, basically. <laughs> that's all, and that's really all we saw yesterday in the dunes was just people that were maybe inexperienced um, or took maybe not the quite the best line. Yeah. And that was the only time that the vehicle really had any challenges. But it, it was also nice to see everybody working together. And, you know, we had to even use a kinetic rope to tow out one yeah. of the vehicles. And it was uh, it was really neat. And for me, that was one of the joys of yesterday is that I had the chance to just spend the whole morning with the drive team and really spend a lot more time in the dunes driving the vehicle than I would have normally been able to do. So. Yeah, it's a great team as well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, it the, really the, is. The guys that, that look after these events, not just you know here, but obviously globally. They're uh, incredible. It's a, it's a great bunch of people, you know, really, really uh, just so experienced. They know how to do it. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a pleasure working with them. Yeah, all of you guys are just, you're the masters of your craft. And, you know, everybody from David Sneath, who was on the podcast Absolutely. a few years yeah. ago, and the care that he puts into these drive routes and everything else like that. Uh, to you, and, and I learned something new about you today in the car that was so fascinating. If I understand it, or remember it correctly, you were 13 years old when you published your first book. That is right. <laughs> yes, I was. I was a nerdy teenager. Uh-huh. <laughs> was, well, it was working out for you. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. Book. That's it. So I, I, yeah, I started. This is, where, I mean, this is where it all started, really. Is um, uh, I was interested in cars. I was interested in conversions and sort of special... Special modified vehicles and Range Rover, uh, the classic Range Rover, was uh, back in the seventies and eighties was one of the most modified um, vehicles ever. Sure, six wheelers, hunting vehicles for the Middle East here, convertibles, you know, uh, rally cars, police, the Pope Mobile, you know, those ones converted for sure. Queen, you know, all these different modifications. So as a as a boy, I, I wrote to these manufacturers and said, oh, please send me some photographs and information. I started to create this scrapbook, which then eventually became this book that was published by Haynes Publishing back in 1987. 
Yeah, and I was, and I was, many of I was you that are listening when I wrote it. So. Yeah, many of you that are listening will know the Haynes manuals because you've worked on your own Land Rover exactly. or Jeep or anything. I mean, these are prolific. Yeah. So well, Haynes manuals was so they had like a um, obviously they published you know normal books as well as the sure. Manuals. So this wasn't this wasn't a technical. Sure, this was this was basically a, a sort of a, a scrapbook of, of cool photographs of some of the, the amazing vehicles that have been produced. So yeah, that's where it all started. And um, there's a few of my own photos in there. I started to take pictures as a as a boy. I was sure. uh, into photography. It sort of snowballed from there, really. Sort of the book came out and uh, it was reviewed in a magazine called Land Rover Owner, which again was at the time a very small publication sure. being produced by by three guys in a shed, basically, in, <laughs> sure. in, in Norfolk. So I started to do a bit of work for them. And of course, you know, if you remember that. So you were 14 in, when you started working for the magazine. I was, yeah, very, very young, sort of a they... photographer and just was just... You know, they, I mean, they were they were keen for content, and, sure. And obviously, because I was, uh, you know, I was keen to do stuff, and I was I was still at school, but my parents were were kind enough to to give me lifts to sort of you know sure. rallies and and various different things. Um, so yeah, and then it sort of went on from there. Carried on working with Land Rover owner for for years, and then they were taken over by a larger publishing company, which actually coincided with when I left um, university, and then. That's it. Just carried on from there. Started working for other magazines within the group. In 1996, I had the opportunity to go on Camel Trophy, and then um, and that was as a journalist or as yeah. As a so this was another one of these weird twists of fate. So um, I had a place as a journalist on, on the 96 Trophy for Land Rover owner, but uh, coincidentally, my a friend of mine was working at the, the London Boat Show. Uh, and he met uh, the guy that was running the photographic operation for Camel Trophy, a chap called Lee Farrant. Um, and Lee was at the boat show just as a as a sort of a you know customer, a sort sure. of a, a person interested in boats. Got speaking to my mate who was working on one of the stands, and and he said, "Oh, you should speak to my mate Nick. He's a he's a keen Land Rover photographer. He, he'd love to do the Camel Trophy." So uh, <laughs> Lee, they swapped cards and said, "Yeah, going to give me a call." And um, so I uh, I called him, and again, coincidentally, he happened to live about six streets away from where I was living in London. Unbelievable. Uh, so we met. We went down. It was to the meant pub. to be. That's there. it. We met. The, we met at the pub and had a chat, and um, and obviously because I was already going on the event, it was great because he said, "Look, I'll." Uh, I'll do you a deal. I'll um, I'll give you some rolls of film because obviously it was all shot on film. Then I'll give you rolls of film uh, if you can uh, if you can basically let us have first dibs on all your um, stuff. We'll process it, um, and uh, yeah, that's how it started. And obviously did a reasonable job and, and got asked to do the, the event next year as one of the official teams. So, and um, how many years of the Camel Trophy did you participate? I did the last four. So you literally saw the last of... The last, yeah. So yeah. the last Land Rovers, so the 96, 97, 98 event. Mm-hmm. There was no event in 99. And then obviously the 2000 event, which was in the ribs in the South Pacific. So right. very different event, but again... But to have experienced all of those, for me, I look at Camel Trophy and I just, I kind of hear it and see it in hushed tones and it's all this excitement steeped in so much yeah which is a long around. time ago now as well. it is That's, you know it's, it is it's uh, the last event was in 2000 first event in 1980 yeah you know, and that was with jeeps if i remember correctly. correct yeah the first event 1980 was uh, was in brazil with uh, with these license built jeeps brazilian jeeps uh, the u50 it's called yeah um, and then, uh, yeah, the next event, 81, was was in Range Rover. And that was the start of a long association, Camel Trophy and Land Rover, which you know, is, is amazing. It is amazing. And the, the first year that you participated would have been a Discovery 1. Correct, yeah. yeah. And, and, and Soft Dash Discovery 1. Sure. Six. Yeah, TDI. And 
when you look back on on that experience, what were some of the things that you thought were key takeaways about travel, about driving, about setting up a vehicle that you learned from? Yeah, I, mean, I was I was pretty green then. I yeah. actually, I mean, I've been fortunate to do a few trips because again, because I've been working while I was at college, so I had done the Warm Challenge events. Okay, the Warm sure. Challenge in Morocco. I did, yeah, I did sure. That and that was in '94. Transylvania Trophy as well. I know that. Some one. of these legendary they are events legendary. that were yeah. back in the '90s. Yeah, um, for sure. So I, I did that one. Interesting. Well. Um, yeah, that Transylvania Trophy looked like it was, and the entire thing was in water. It was basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, I've uh, seen the photos. Driving down it's a unbelievable. river, like the whole uh, a day stage was literally driving down a river. Um, unbelievable, which was, which was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, so, very cool. So uh, yeah, twenty. I was twenty-one years old. It's sort of funny, and you think <laughs> it's a long time ago. Now. Yeah. I'd done a few trips, but yeah, I was definitely a bit green when it came to sort of travel. You know, sort of. Uh, didn't sort of know what to expect. They gave a few, there was like a little mini event guide, which gave you a few tips of what to bring and you know, all the sort of medications, the anti-malarial tablets and all that. Are any of those still in existence, those guides? Yeah, I've got, I've got them. I've still got my guide. Yeah. I would so, love, to, I would love to, so I did, I mean, to part, see those as part of my scan. research for the, the book, I actually um, went through all this stuff and it was, it was I fantastic. saw that you had some of the lists included in the book. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So all that stuff is, uh, huh. is all around, but anyway, yeah, so that was that. But yeah, it was. It was. I mean, we 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 lived out of that car for three weeks, and it was. Um, I mean, that that trip to Borneo was. They say one of the toughest camel trophies. I mean, it felt pretty tough at the time. We did we did five hundred miles in two weeks. The first wow. the first two weeks because wow. it was it was just bridge building, winching. You know, it was it was it was tough. Mud, mud, mud. You know, it was that. It was classic classic camel trophy. You know, sure, real proper hardcore, just slow going getting the convoy through winching bridge building you know it was it was a it was a, a track that hadn't been used for years sure you know the locals which is what it. they loved that's it the, the locals, <laughs> the the locals were on it on mopeds sure so we were getting like you know i think it was 40 40 vehicles defense and discoveries through so it was pretty pretty tough they had a road at the end of that yeah, pretty much exactly. Yes, yeah, it. it was definitely uh, that was definitely uh, yeah definitely a good way, and, that's, and that was always the thing again with Camel Trophy that was good because you know, there was a legacy that was left quite often with you know locals that couldn't get through because bridges were broken and everything sure. else, and, and actually the trophy would come in and you know construct these uh, these bridges, repair them to get the the convoy through. They were quite robust. Leave it, yeah, leave it for the locals to have, and there was you know quite a few stories of. You know, places that the bus couldn't get through, and then all of a sudden, because of trophy, it could. So, right, it was a very positive legacy in that respect. And if if I remember, the media would oftentimes assist, but not drive. Is that true? Uh, no, no, no. We, we would drive as well. I mean, on the, on the, in the same. Yes, yeah, so also the, there was the competitive sections at the beginning of the end. So the media couldn't be involved with that. But if you, but were, in the meantime, if you were participating media, you were expected to be part of it. Yeah, very much wow. like help get the car through, winch, you know, participate. And I mean, admittedly, the team members didn't want to let the, the journalists drive because they were too busy having it. But sometimes it was necessary because of right. you're exhausted. You're, you're working, you know, you're driving for 20, even sure. 24 hours, you know, sure. just so you inevitably have to share the driving. So, um, yeah, so I drove a few times in, in that. And you were you were along with the the UK, UK team. team. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, and who were the who were the two drivers for the UK team of so that year? Will Tapley and John Leach. Okay. So, uh, so you John, keep in touch with those guys. Uh, yeah, so Will actually he lives in uh, in Florida, so he's down uh, <laughs> down in the US. Oh, that's great. And uh, John, I never kept in touch with John because he actually went off and had a, a military career. So I think oh wow. He, 
he was about to join the army. So I think remember we talked earlier. About, we did about uh, it was you were not allowed to be a member of the served uh, sorry serving member of the armed forces That's to right. join a camel trophy, but he managed to dodge that by not actually joining until after he left. Yeah, I still have my I still have my original application, and again, it was just I was just so grateful that Tom Collins took the time to just let me know that I wouldn't qualify because of being in active reserves. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Was certainly a steep learning curve for um, I was I was twenty three at the time yeah so it was, uh, it was a it was a, <laughs> a steep learning curve for a young twenty three year old but but it was great it was a really good experience and actually you know cemented the fact that that's something that I wanted to do as a career because I was still wavering at that time about maybe going into television that was a sure that was something that I was looking at doing but actually that that particular event sort of made me think actually do you know what I want to I want to do this this is what I want to do and this is what I've been doing ever since. <laughs> yeah, well, and the, and those those events were just so iconic, and I think transformative for the Land Rover brand. And I think it also really brought overlanding and vehicle based adventuring to the general consciousness. You know, not so much in the United States because the Camel Trophy never really gained a lot of popularity there. Uh, but in Europe, there would be millions of applicants. Absolutely, yeah. So again, UK was not really a massive market um for camel trophy sure um, it was only because of the land rover connection that yeah. was there but obviously in in spain france germany huge huge following and in fact um a friend of mine moy torrezona who was a competitor for spain in 1990 is now very much involved with land rover and um, moy said that you know he was when he came back from doing that event, you know, he was on TV. It was like all over the place. And he said it was like being a celebrity. You know, you're or a football in, star. Yeah, you'd walk into a bar yeah. and say, hey, we know you. You're the, you're the guy from Camel Trophy. And, you know, he said it was incredible from going from like, you know, not being sure. known at all to being suddenly this sort of personality. So, yeah, it was, it was, a, big, it was a big deal back in the, yeah. back in the 90s in, in many countries. And then when you were, I'm just curious because – Photography at that time was quite different, and there would have been it's all on film. There would have been, yeah, <laughs> you'd been shooting on film, and there would be a whole separate video crew. Correct, yeah. And today, you do both quite efficiently between the two. Sure, I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm primarily a photographer, but do a little bit of video as well. But, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, you look at look at camera technology and and how things. I mean, you know, we've all got mobile phones, and we do. Fact, our mobile phones are incredible devices for capturing things is is uh, you know you look back you know when we first started back in the 90s you know it was it was almost inconceivable that this would, would be the case but yeah this is this is technology and it's great i love i love the fact that you know technology allows us to do much better things be more creative you know shooting on raw is is just yeah. an incredible thing to be able to to change you know pick up bring yeah, bring up shadows, bring down highlights. You know, it's, mm. it's things like that that really um, good. But equally, I love the fact that I had a basic grounding in, in film, you know, because that's something that... I think so. And I, <laughs> it was the same for me. I, I had a the EOS, the eye control, the right. Yeah, That was proper. That was proper radical. <laughs> I felt like it. <laughs> yeah, something out of Star Trek. Yeah, it, that's right. Uh, but I'm glad that I did start in film and that I, I had a dark room and right, I spent yeah. the time... To really understand the mechanics of yeah. photography, um, well, that's what Lightroom is. Basically, Lightroom yeah. is is a is a darkroom, but without the chemicals. It is, and and it's it's quite good. Yeah, I remember <laughs> I remember being quite sad when Aperture went away from Apple, but Lightroom is better now. Absolutely, it's, it's, yeah. they finally yeah. eclipsed anything sure. that Aperture sure. ever did. So when when you think about your photography equipment, because there's no no doubt that some that are listening 
would love to make a, for a career in adventure in vehicles and and uh, being a photographer to do that. Uh, what talk a little bit about what kind of equipment that you do use now? Of course, all that being said, you know, beautiful images come from talented photographers. They don't come from expensive equipment, but. I do notice that you're you're because I've known you for long enough to watch your kit refine and you keep downsizing and you're more efficient in the field now. Sure. Well, I mean, well, travel is quite an interesting thing because it is. obviously you have to decide what you're going to carry and, and and how you're going to travel. So, I mean, the nice thing about working with vehicle-based trips is obviously you have a vehicle to work out of most of sure. the time. So that allows you to have more equipment to be able to carry a different variety of lenses. But obviously, if you're, you know, other times I'm, I'm, I'm working in a vehicle, but it may not be my vehicle because obviously sure. when I'm working on a, a large event, I'm fortunate enough to have the photo car, if you like, the sure. car that has me and a driver that we can get ahead and, and do all the things you need to do. But uh, if I don't have that and I have to be, you know, literally have a, a small seat and that's all you've got, then obviously a basic kit of a sort of, you know, a couple of bodies, a telephoto zoom and a, and a, a wide angle to telephoto zoom, pretty much all you need. So you'll run two bodies. One of them Always will be, Bodies, yeah. will be on the ought to have the reach 2470 uh with a wide angle to sort of mid mid telephoto and then on this particular trip i've had the um 100 to 500 i saw that which is a that's yeah a, so I'm a, I'm a recent yeah so <laughs> i'm a, a recent, canon, canon. Um, yeah so i'm a recent convert to the mirrorless system yeah so i've been using eos canon eos for years where, where you know starting with the film days the the eos ones mm. Uh, had all the whole range of those, the EOS 1Ns, the EOS 1RSs, which are the semi-transparent mirrors, if you remember I those. remember, yeah. Oh, I loved those. They were great. And then, obviously, when the digital photography started coming about, so initial camera was the D30, which was the first yeah. Canon-owned proprietary digital camera. Prior to that, we were using the Kodak uh, Canon hybrids, which were basically converted film cameras, which were wow. two and a half megapixels, imagine. Uh, so, but, Amazing yeah, to how things have come on, but anyway, the um, our phones, yeah, so our phones have twenty times. Absolutely, that. that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was slow, and the batteries had run out, and it was yeah, yeah just you know, <laughs> different world. But yeah, so now for years I had the one DX, one DX Mark One, Mark Two, Mark Three. I had two one DX Mark Threes, which I absolutely loved. And then um, my friend Dave Shepard basically had swapped a mirror and said, "You got to try one of these." So tried it, and I was like, "Wow, this is." This is where it's at. This is where it's going to go, and and obviously, and um, they're more compact, and that's it. And so, so yeah. Capable. So I'm now on two uh, R3s, Canon R3s, and basically chopped everything in. All my old EF lenses went in, and I just did a massive part exchange. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big bill. Yeah, um, I can imagine. But uh, yeah, so I'm I'm on that. So that and one of the advantages is you get this lovely 100 to 500 zoom lens, which as a as a travel lens is just brilliant. That's you know, incredible because you to have that range. Up, yeah, to have the range, and you know, obviously, is a trade off with the aperture. But obviously, shooting in these bright conditions, there was plenty of light. Issue, so I mean, it was incredible how much light there was yeah. in the dunes. I've still I've still got my 300 two eight and my 400 two eight. Sure which I, I love those lenses, but, you know, those are lenses that, you know, very much used for specific conditions. And obviously out in the dunes, you don't need that wide aperture. So, um, well, having said that, if I was doing the wildlife thing, yes, and obviously you're going to be doing that early dusk, morning yeah. dark stuff, so yeah. then I would be using those, those fast apertures. Yeah, so. you would. From my perspective too, it's been interesting to see how well you've bridged the, like the visual storytelling between highlighting the product, which is your job is to highlight sure. the Land Rover, yeah. but, you also have done a, a very good job of providing a sense of place as well. And I think 
that for those that are looking as a publisher, when I look at, at photography from those that are submitting stories, I not only want to see the vehicle, but I also need to understand that that sense of, of yeah. place. Um, and one of the one of my favorite photos is actually a photo that you took of me in Namibia. I had gotten kind of down on on one knee, and there was this beautiful young boy that was um, in a Namib like a, a, a Himba right, yes, location. Yeah, yeah. And I was taking some photos of him, and you took a photo of me snapping that shot. Right. Um, but it, that's the sense of place. Sure. I mean, I think that's the nice thing about so. I would ask myself as an automotive photographer. Sure. But obviously, being an automotive photographer actually has so many different disciplines. Mm. So as well as so as well as Land Rover stuff, I also um, work for some other brands as well, which takes me into the world of motorsport. So I've done a few Le Mans uh, 24-hour races, you know, Nürburgring 24-hour races. And, and obviously capturing that, is a very different discipline from doing something that's an expedition in the jungle, like Camel Trophy or Sugar sure. Challenge. And then equally, you know, with automotive, I'm also shooting cars in the studio. So sure. again, that's completely different. Full so, yeah. And then, you know, we get to go to some amazing varied places. So, you know, you've got the jungle, so you've got the humidity, you've got the, just the general sort of, I mean, as you probably know, the jungle is a, is a hard place to exist. It's it's not designed as a camera. It's not it's not designed for humans, let alone cameras. <laughs> so right. you know that's that's a big issue. And then obviously you know Arctic conditions. So I, I shoot in. Um, I've been in Iceland. I mean, we go back to 2015 where we did the launch of the Discovery Sport. Yeah, I was there for that one with you. And you know, only Land Rover would be crazy enough to do a, a car launch in the middle of the Icelandic winter. And it was it was tough. It was tough. I was, remember that part of the team, part of the drive team, had to just sleep on the floor of the yeah, hotel. That's right. That's right. They and couldn't was, get to their other property. Know, it was a proper adventure. I yeah, think that's great. It felt like it. The fact yeah. that you know uh, uh, this is not a normal car route. No, no. <laughs> it's like, uh, and it was every day was different. You'd wake up and it was a storm blowing, or you'd wake up and it was a lovely, you know, crystal clear sky. Or, and that's the beauty of Iceland is it's just such a dramatic yeah, place. Yeah. And as a photographer, um, some of my favorite images that I've ever taken yeah. were in Iceland. Just yeah. that, that that never ending sunset almost. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's really quite so we were there we were there obviously in winter, which yeah. is again it's that time when the, the period of it's I think it's four hours of daylight not a day. much. Yeah. But much. obviously the daylight you do get is low sun all the way through. So yeah. it's basically golden hour for four hours so it's absolutely stunning we, we absolutely loved it that time. yeah i i, uh, I, I did love that and that again trip. so varied the conditions but you know and this is what you have to put your cameras through the cameras go through all these different different conditions i was in in sweden two weeks ago okay at minus 15 <laughs> and, sure. here, and here we are you know sort of plus 40 yeah. two weeks later when we were in the dunes warm. it was warm it was warm it yeah. was so um so, yeah, so as an automotive photographer, going back to your question, you know, uh, again, another good friend of mine said that, you know, he's not an automotive photographer, he's a landscape photographer. He just happens to put a car in the frame. And I think I think I approach a little bit that as well. The fact I see that. that. The, the background is is as important as the foreground. Yeah. And obviously, you know, I'm there working for, for Land Rover, so the car's the star. But equally, the context of where the car is is really important. And again, why I love working for Land Rover is obviously you've got vehicles that do amazing things in so many different places. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's there's always something going on, you know, in the dunes, 
amazing angles, you know, action, sand flying, rock crawl, you know, yeah. axle articulation, wheels lifting, all yeah. that sort of stuff. In the mud, you know, going through, fording through the, the muddy muddy waters of Eastner, you know. Sure. Just looks cool, doesn't it? It looks super and, cool. And that's one of the things, I mean, in a way, don't tell anyone, but yeah, it's it's actually quite easy to photograph while Andrew were doing stuff because <laughs> because it's stuff's happening. It's interesting, yeah. you know. It's um, visually very interesting. Visually very interesting. So, yeah. you know, that's one of the things that's a real pleasure is actually the variety of terrains, landscapes, places, weather conditions, all these things over my 25-year career working for Land Rover. Yeah, because um, you're, well, you're getting close to 30 years now, yeah. Yeah, first, well, I first started, my first job was, was um, obviously, 1996. So 96 was, Trophy, yeah. But then the first time I actually worked for Land Rover directly, because Camel Trophy was a separate company. I see. Uh, was in 1997. Amazing. Uh, when Bill Baker, uh, yeah. I'm sure you remember the... I do. God rest his soul. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, yeah, he actually commissioned me in 97 to... Um, do some work with the Freelander One when it was announced in the UK, and that was the first commission I had with with Land Rover back in amazing yeah, well, six uh, twenty six years ago. Amazing. Let's pivot a little bit to travel. So, as a professional photographer, you've literally traveled around the world. What were some of your favorite trips, or what was your most favorite adventure that you've been on? Yeah, I mean, again, so one of the nice things working with Land Rover is is the fact that I've been to some you know many, many different countries. I think about um, it's sort of upper 80s, 85, 86 countries, I think it is. Sure. Yeah, in terms of my favourites, I mean, all the travel, well, certainly the travel aspect. I mean, Camel Trophy Mongolia uh, in 97 was, yeah. was I mean, it's a long time ago, but it, again, still ranks up there as being a, a really quite a special trip. And how different Mongolia would have been in 97? You and I were speaking earlier, and you had gone back in 2008, and I was there in 2010. For me, it was the only time I'd been to Mongolia, so it it did still feel very nomadic, and there was yeah. a lot because we traveled the northern route, which was very remote. There were still very much nomadic families, but I'm sure it's almost completely different now. Yeah, I mean, I've not been back, and I would I yeah. would love to go back actually. Yeah. But it's it's one of those things that in those ten years, that was '97 to 2008, I definitely noticed the difference there. That the first year. Once you got outside the city, it was, you know, there were no cars. Right. It was horseback or or Russian-built old motorcycles. That's right. That's how they got around. Everyone was in a nomad world. Well, they're nomadic people, so they basically sure. have these gurs, which they pack up and then move and move with their sheep and graze. Uh, and obviously, as the grazing runs out, they move. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they were all in, in national dress, very much, you know, no English spoken. Mm-hmm. There was was no communication apart from smiles and, and gestures, which was and they were very great. And they are easy to smile people. Absolutely, yeah, just very much so, so very welcoming, wonderful. It's that that culture of again being in those harsh yes. environments. I mean, Mongolia is a harsh environment. It's yes. it's cold. It's windy. It's you know yeah. very. The sun is very strong. So the, yeah. the 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 stranger is is welcomed in because they need to be protected. So that's right. And there's very much a culture of that. Anyway, I noticed in that in the ten years that that uh, that I was there, um, or not so the ten years in between the first time and the last time I was there. Yeah, everyone was in national dress, but I noticed that these girls had satellite dishes outside. Sure. Um, if you looked a bit closer, the people that were still wearing national dress, but if you looked at the bottom of their robes, you could see that they were actually wearing jeans underneath. Mm. And this is the sort of the Western culture starting to to come in and. Uh, you know, you sort of hope that there's they haven't lost their own sort of cultural identity, but um, it know, seems to be happening rapidly. 
and it's in the end you want you want them to have whatever access to modernity that they want as Absolutely. a culture. Absolutely. But it is it is still a sense of loss for the traveler that a lot of these incredibly diverse and unique cultures are are homologating. They look very Western Absolutely. now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of places, um, some of the most memorable trips. I mean, there's been some some incredible ones, and I think yeah. um, I've been fortunate enough to to do three um, really long range trips with with Land Rover a while ago now. So 1998, we did the Discovery Around the World trip, which was the launch of the Discovery Two, and the first phase of that was London to Calcutta in India. Okay, so I did I did that, which was 25 days. I remember that trip. Yeah, that was another Bill Baker one. That was yeah. uh, that was a that was a pretty amazing trip. You know, just yeah. going through all of uh, Eastern Europe and then dropping down into Turkey. Then we went all the way across Turkey, and then into Iran, mm. across Iran. I mean, again, this would be a trip that would be unrepeatable. Very difficult. Now. Yeah, very difficult. Um, and then into Iran, then Pakistan. We were you know skirting the Afghanistan border, and then into India, and then across into Calcutta. So um, that was a that was a. Pretty amazing experience. That would be. And then um, let's think it was 20, 2011, I think it was. Did another trip. That's no, wrong. I'm thinking about another trip, the Discovery one. We did another one in um, uh, 2002, which was again with the back end of Discovery 2. Um, and that was Norway to Jordan. Oh, fantastic. Um, and that was uh, following a rally. So again, that was another unrepeatable trip because it was. The, the through Syria, from, through Syria, yeah. exactly. Yeah, through Damascus. I'm then, so glad that you were able to see Damascus in its yeah, glory. I, I, amazing. I didn't go. I had an invitation, and I didn't go. And it'll never be the same. No, no, exactly. I mean, one of the things I remember about Damascus was was the was driving through the city. Everyone there was on their horn. So literally, it's like a. It wasn't like it was almost like a not a. It wasn't like a um, an aggressive <laughs> sure. thing. It was just like Whoop, I'm here. And it was like once you got into the zone, you must like bib in the horn, and it was just like a like a friendly little sort of game that everyone would play. Totally, I've got my little space, and then you're going to go through. It was um, great fun. Yeah, what an incredible country! And then the last one, another trip to India, which was um, 2013 with the Range Rover uh, hybrid, and that was um, yeah across uh, similar sort of route, but instead of going south into uh, Turkey, this time we kept north and then went through the stands. So. Kazakhstan, uh, Uzbekistan, and uh, and you were on Kyrgyzstan. that trip, yeah, exactly. Nice. And then we did a, a drop down across the um, Torogat Pass, I think it is, oh, that okay. goes into China um, from Kyrgyzstan, and then you, wow. you we then drove all the way down the um, the western side of, of China, sort of very close to the um, Indian border, which was on the Xinjiang Highway. I think they said at the time we were the first Westerners to actually complete the whole. Uh, north to the south of the, the Xinjiang Highway, wow. which then takes you into Nepal. Uh, and again, you've got this amazing, obviously at very high altitude for most of the time, and then you drop down to this border town, which is sort of the funnel where everything goes from China into Nepal. And amazing. then obviously across Nepal, which in itself is a, an amazing... Again. Oh, it's a, it's you enjoyed amazing. it? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, wow. Again, I mean, I mean, this is one of the things, isn't it? it when, you're, um, when you travel... One of the most memorable things for me, anyway, at least, is the people, mm. the smiling faces, the people. No you know, just those human interactions. And it might be a split second. You know, you might see someone and think, "Oh, can you take their photograph?" And you know, sort of have that interaction. And it's it's a it's a really nice thing. And then, yeah, Nepal, then into India again. It's just the experience of actually just driving through these places and and 
people waving. You know, it's, I mean, that's one of the things that, particularly if you're doing a trip where you've got a number of vehicles, mm. which often these are. So that particular trip, we had three uh, Range Rover hybrids plus uh, four Discovery four or LR four support cars. So we were seven vehicles, uh, all silver with uh, decals, logos. I remember that, yeah. And so, you know, when we come through the town and in the middle of nowhere, it's a quite a spectacle. It's it's great because, you know, people come out and they're waving or interested to know what you're doing. Sure. uh, You know, I mean, that's one of the things I think, which if anyone's doing a a type of overland trip that's a a long distance trip, I'd recommend having a a map of your route on, on the bonnet, on the door, whatever, because... That's the easiest way when someone says, you know, where are you going? What are you doing? You say, right, have a look at this. And we had these maps on the bonnet of the, uh, of the, or the hood, I should say, sure. of, the, of, uh, of yeah. the cars. So you could show people and say, well, look, we started here in, in, uh, in Birmingham, in Solihull, and we've been all this way. And you could actually show, and that, that was a, a visual way of uh, people understanding what the journey that you're on. That's right. So, yeah, definitely a recommendation. Put a, and I think one of the things that I like most about the trips that you're referring to is that they were all done in stock vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. they weren't modified. They were no, factory, no. and that's one of the key things with with obviously any Land Rover trip is that it has to be in a, a stock vehicle because it's you know in in theory it's a, a trip that you could go to a, a Land Rover dealership, buy the car, and go off and do it. Well, and you did. And I we mean, did. It, yeah, you think about you cross the Silk Road, you went from Jordan to Norway, and I mean these are significant. Yeah overland trips they that are. were done in totally stock standard absolutely, vehicles. Yeah. And obviously we had a lot of assistance in terms of, you know, people helping with logistics and, yeah. and the like. But, but the car. But the car is, you know, it's it's a stock vehicle, you know, with maybe a little bit of, you know, the mud terrain tires, the stronger sure. tires, an extra spare wheel, a winch. But apart from that. But those are all factory options. All factory options. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Stuff that and that was also buy. what was so impressive about, Camel Trophy. They did. They did have some yeah, modifications. Were, yeah. So they were mainly for safety. So things like that's the right. Roll cage, the roll cage, yeah, um, which obviously was important. And, and then they tied it into the roof rack and, and exactly that kind of yeah. thing. But everything else was. I mean, even the bumper and the winch you could get from a Land Rover dealership. Yeah, yeah. they just bolted on. You know. Yeah, and I think it's just such a, an important reminder that you don't have to spend all this money modifying your vehicle. No. You could buy the right vehicle to begin with. And it, that may be a Land Rover, that may be a Land Cruiser, whatever is the brand of your choice, but buy a good vehicle to start Absolutely, off with. Yeah, yeah. And you, you can, in most cases, drive around the world without doing any real yeah. modification. And I think to that's it. one of the things, again, we were talking about earlier, I think, is that you know, mod- vehicle modifications are good to make your life more comfortable, You know, maybe make it a little bit more capable in the sense of being able to recover yourself and, and, and have safety things like roll cages. Mm-hmm. That's a, something that's, that is actually quite a good thing. But, you know, at the end of the day, the more stock it is, the more easy it will be if you have any issues. So that's if right. you, you know, if you break down or have a, you know, I mean, you, you hear about these things, people have these trick suspensions and actually, you know, that's the bit that actually breaks. And then For sure. all of a sudden you can't get that particular component in wherever you are in that right. area. So, you know, it's it's good to keep things as I, I think anyway, as sort of as as, as standard, standard as possible, possible but yeah. obviously with a you know, maybe a few little subtle modifications mm. for, for safety and to, I would agree. to enhance performance in certain areas. What other takeaways? If someone was to to sit down with you like we are now and say, I'd I'd love to start traveling the world by vehicle, what are some other things that you've learned along the way as a traveler that you would give recommendations to? If you were talking to your 14-year-old self or your 21-year-old self, set an itinerary, but don't 
don't have to be like strict and sort of mm. say, we need to be at this location at a certain time, particularly with a long trip. You know, you don't know what's necessarily going to come about. So, for example, you know, you might be stuck at a border crossing. You know, no that question. border crossing that you think is going to take two hours might take you two days. Sure. Because someone somewhere decides that then you're not going to get through. Now, so that's an extreme example, but, but that happens. it does happen. Of course. Yeah. And also, never you might end up in an area or somewhere where you actually just you like the feel of it. You like the vibe and you think, actually, I'm going to stay here for a little bit longer. Mm. So if, if I was planning a trip personally that I was, um, you know, on a, on a, on a long, long range travel, I would, I would have probably key spots where I would end up wanting to be, but I would actually, the bit in between, I'd leave flexible. Sure. You, know, you might want to spend a bit more time somewhere. You might actually think somewhere is not, not really where it's, where it's at for me. So I'm sure. I'm going to keep going. So, and then maybe bank those days for a future. Absolutely, that's future it. Moment. That's it. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I, li- I like stay to call flexible. It, Don't be too rigid yeah. in your planning. I like to call it uh, strong planning, loosely held. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's <laughs> a good because you want to start off uh, being methodical and know where you want to go and have good information. Know where those beautiful campsites are, but be open to serendipity Absolutely. along. along and the way. you know, you meet people <clears> and again. It's this people thing again. You know, you meet people along the way. And they'll open a door for you that you had no idea was there. Sure. And then all of a sudden, you want to be able to go and make make use of that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's good. So let's talk about, uh, you have an impressive fleet of Land Rovers yourself. And uh, let's talk about your favorite one to begin with. Oh, gosh, I'm going to pick a favorite. <laughs> <laughs> we won't tell. We won't tell. <laughs> well, I guess probably my favorite has to be the one that I've had longest, which is my 100-inch Defender. It's a it's a V8. Um, we did laugh earlier about you. Sure. About you assumed that it was going to be a diesel. I did. Yeah. I said it's the it's the classic thing where you always want what you can't have. So yeah. whereas we have lots of diesels and you have lots of petrols. Yeah. We, 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 we totally. want the V8 and you want the TDI. That's so, right. Uh, that's that's the way it works. But anyway, yeah. So I have a, a 3.9 V8 100 inch soft top uh, Defender, which is my sort of fun car, and I've had sure. that. I've had that since 1998, and I've, I've rebuilt it twice. And when I got married in 2002, that was the car that we drove away from the church and you know, <laughs> all these sort of things. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's probably my my sort of, as you say, the car that I'll be buried in. But I also have, yeah, a couple of, well, I have three uh, classic Range Rovers. Have, Which uh, are just, they're just exceptional. Yeah, they're I mean, so amazing. They're, uh, yes, 1979, uh, which has got 44,000 miles from new, all original, no replacement tailgate. It mm. was one owner car. I had it basically just to tow his caravan once a year. So Amazing. very fortunate. As, as I had not planned to buy it at all, but it was one of those things that was offered to me. And I was like, hmm, I'll give it a little drive. I drove it. I'm like, I cannot not buy this car. I couldn't afford it, but I had to buy it. So um, yeah. so thank goodness I did. And then, yeah. It's a nice like, retirement plan. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's it. Classic. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> the 1995 Soft Dash um, uh, short wheelbase with a 4.2 factory fitted V8 was the first of the autobiography series. So it was um, wow. produced by by the factory to, to showcase the autobiography. So sure, had a special paint. Amazing. It had Brooklyn's bumpers, the, the, the spoiler type. I bumpers. remember that, yeah. So I actually changed those for chrome bumpers. So I've done my own little modification sure. to it. I did a did hold on to the originals? Yeah, I've got yeah. some of those as well. Yeah. So I may put those back at some point. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so that's those two. I've also got another soft dash, which I've had since 2006. That's in mothballs. That's a... That's, a, that's probably my going to be my retirement project to rebuild that. What else have I got? I had a CSK, which I had to sell um, last year just to make some space for 
was getting to the point where I couldn't I couldn't drive anything because I couldn't get anything out of the lockup where I was. So uh, yeah. so the CSK that I had um, was was sold, and then I also have a, uh, a Citroen Two CV. Oh, which fun! Is, um, which is my that's my carbon offset program <laughs> against the, uh, the five V8s that I own. <laughs> but yeah, but the 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 Two CV is such a classic. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it was now was, is yours is. Because didn't they make a one that was also a small little van as well? Yes, there's a the, the van, the Fulgonet, as they call it. Yeah, so so Matt Scott, my my co-host of 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 the podcast that you've, I believe you've met him on other programs, but he just bought one of those for his wife. Ah, perfect with the little van, with the corrugated. It's so great. Sides and yeah, yeah, it's yeah. so it's so great. It is. They're it's so just neat. a character thing. Oh, it's, absolutely. It's, it doesn't doesn't go very fast. <laughs> you have to drive it flat out all the time. Um, <laughs> So uh, it's it's a great it's a great photo. Oh, absolutely. So now if you were if you were gonna leave tomorrow to drive around the world, what uh, what vehicle would you take? That's an interesting question, actually. I think it depends where I'm going, but actually I guess it depends what sort of journey I want to have as well, mm-hmm. because you get to pick. Well I know, but the thing is it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because <laughs> see if I want to go for like a, an easy trip, I'd probably take a, a new defender, very similar to the ones that we've been driving the last yeah, the one thirty, yeah, the one thirty with with the again just the basic equipment, roof rack, winch, serious good tires, tires, good yeah. tires, and then that's pretty much the main modifications mm-hmm. you need, really. Um, so if I was doing an easy trip, I'd go for that. But actually, there's something in me that actually I quite like the idea of taking a series vehicle. Mm. I quite fancy getting a like a long wheelbase series two. And just having that, and just taking that, on being the in the moment every yeah, moment. Yeah, because you are in the moment. You know, it's yeah. it's you're, you're living. You know, I've done I've done a few trips with uh, with Ike Goss and the team. Yeah, uh, out we did a we did a trip in the um, in the Black Rock Desert about eighteen months ago. Wow, um, in three series ones. Wow, and it was great. I mean, it was just pure. So golden. charming. It is. It's just you know you are. <laughs> But it's it's you know it's it's not as comfortable clearly, but it's a, just a completely different. Say you're in the moment, you're in there, you you're are. driving it. The car, you know, you've got to you've got to. Coach and the, the plan can change at any moment. And it's the simplicity <laughs> as well that I, sure. I really enjoy. I think it's you know in in, the, in today's complicated life of you know tech yeah. and being connected and everything else, actually having that sort of analog experience of of just you know there's no gadgets, there's no nothing to help you. Mm. It's, it's you and the machine. Yeah. That I quite like that idea. Well, maybe that'll be part of the retirement plan. Yeah, but you don't want to be in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. So it comes back to what I was saying about the time. Yeah. You know, you you've got a no particular itinerary. Just you you start where you start and you finish where you finish. Well, one that of the, appeals to me. It does, and it, I I think most people find those trips like uh, Ray and Marianne Highland that took kind of recreated the the first overland trip and they did it in a 1950s series one a few years ago. And that was just so incredible what they, what they did as a family, them and their, yeah, their sons and everything else like that, all in a, in a 80 inch. Yeah. That's it. So that's it. You know, incre- incredible. But it makes it also that focuses your mind on what you're taking. So you, for example, going in an 80, you haven't got much space, have you? And you don't. And, and in reality, you don't need much really. You just don't. In, in life, you just need shelter, food, and, you know, sort of, and, and company, really. Those, yeah. those are the three things that, that you need. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for that, isn't it? You know, yeah, take an 80 and you've, you've, totally. got, you've got limited amounts of stuff to take. Totally. So, you know, it's, you know, you take a, f- a few clothes and you wash them when you can. And, you know, it's just, just basic needs, which I think there's a lot to be said for that. There is. And I think you have a better experience oftentimes. Yeah. And as you get into countries with 
lower GDP per capita, then everything gets cheaper. Even gets accommodations cheaper. get cheaper, cheaper and more simple. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. 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 So you've had a really significant recent release of a book. So your your career started with a book. Yeah. And then hasn't ended yet. Yes. No. 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 <laughs> uh, COVID hit. Sure. And yeah. Did you just wake up one day and decide to write a book? Yeah. So well, you say COVID. So. Funny enough, that Namibia trip that's right was in uh, sort of February. It was into early March 2019. Yep. And then we came back from that, and obviously, as we were there, it was just starting to kick off globally, wasn't it? Yeah, we got to the end of March, and I had um, three months worth of work, which was booked, and then all of a sudden, it was no longer booked, as it was for all of us. You know, yeah. the base of the world went on hold and on pause. That's right. So it was that thing of like, right, what am I going to do now? So as you say, I had I had the idea to do a camel trophy book it had always been something that I've had in my mind and it was maybe going to be a, a retirement project or something sure. to do, you know, when I had some spare time. Um, and obviously uh, with COVID, I suddenly had lots of spare time. Yeah, so Exactly. So yes, yeah, so I decided to make the most of it and actually go and um, start interviewing people start trying reaching out to try and find the original photography and that's that had what I did. been so much work yeah well it was i mean it was funny because it's something that i think when i look at the you've seen the book it is it's impressive it's quite it's quite a comprehensive it is volume if i say so myself it's one of those things that once i started you know it, it just became an, an absolute obsession uh, a labor of love and it, it was an absolute pleasure to have, be able to dedicate the time i did dedicate to it i mean it was, I mean, literally months and months of work. You can and, see it. And in my mind, it is such such a way to honor all of those people who worked so hard to make Camel Trophy a possibility. And just the event itself, all the competitors. And um, yeah, for those that are listening, take a look. Um, the name of the book. It's called Camel Trophy, The Definitive History. That's right. The last time that I was on Amazon, I did see a few copies that were still available. I'm sure that there are some on eBay. There's no question that they'll start to get more and more expensive yeah, as time yeah, goes on. It's but been a couple of years now, I think. Yeah. It has. And it is, it's it's the only book that I have on my coffee table at my office. And it's just awesome. So it's a heavy thing. It is. <laughs> so I think it's 300 and something pages. Yeah, perfect bound. 950 photos, I think it is. Yeah. 150,000 words. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a fairly comprehensive volume, but it is. The point is, there was a lot to write about. You know, Camel Trophy was on for 40 years, an amazing a number of stories. I mean, yeah. I spoke to all the sort of main people that were instrumental in delivering Camel Trophy over 20 years, uh, right from Andreas Bender, who was the first guy that, that sort of started it back in 1980, through to, you know, Duncan Lee, who was um, the American that worked for R.J. Reynolds, that sure. basically developed the event from from being a German event through to uh, a more you know, global event, um, and then yeah, other Ian Chapman, who was obviously event director for many years, and Nick Horn, who took over at the end. Sure, you know that was uh, it was uh, yeah, an amazing to be able to speak to these people, and of yeah. course these these people are in their in their seventies and eighties. Duncan Lee's in his eighties now, and you know, sad as it is to say, these. These stories are not going to be, you know, told forever. forever. So, and that was one of the things I really wanted to do. I mean, sadly, there were quite a few people that I knew on Camel Trophy that have, have already passed. And, you know, I think of some of the stories they could have told and sadly they've gone. So yeah. that was one thing I really wanted to do was to get those stories down into paper before they were gone forever. And likewise, the photography, again, you know, that was something that um, it was all shot on film. 
So trying to get hold of, particularly those early years, the 1980s, you know, trying to get hold of those original pictures. So I actually managed to contact some of the original German photographers again wow. in their 80s now, and they still had some of their original film left, and I was able to to get hold of that and scan it. It's, it was great, you know. And I think that's where I think you know I'm proud that I managed to achieve that. It was, I mean, obviously COVID was a, a tragedy in many respects, but obviously the, the ability to actually have that time and dedicate that time and, and not have any. I mean, obviously it was worrying in the sense that obviously I didn't have an income. Yeah, sure. <laughs> we all did because yeah. uh, I was as a freelancer. Obviously, clearly, yeah. if you're not working, you're not earning. So that yeah. was that was a bit stressful. But but actually, that was then able to focus on on doing the book and you know, having that as my as my sort of uh, pandemic focus was was really good. So yeah, it was, it's it was, impressive. Uh, it really is. It was, a, it was a pleasure to write it. To be honest, I really I did enjoy doing it, and um, hopefully that comes. No, it was a gift to the whole community and those all that that love the Camel Trophy, and and yeah, it's just a really impressive volume. And I can't wait to see what book you come up with next because uh, yeah, well, books have been a part of your life. Just yeah, not, well, I'm not thinking many. I'm thinking about doing another Camel Trophy book actually, but more just based on the photography. So we'll see yeah. if that if that happens. Sure. And then, and then I might actually just go full circle because the Range Rover Conversions book that I told you about yeah. at the beginning. So uh, since obviously I was 13, I've learned an awful lot more sure. since then. And I think there's a lot of other stories that I've, I'd like to sort of look because whereas that was more about a the scrapbook side of things, sure. Uh, you know the the ooh and the wow moment of the of moment of the, about the vehicles. There are actually some interesting stories about the vehicles and and how they were built and who they were built for. So sure. I'm I'm quite keen to tell some of those stories. The so, history of the Popmobile. You know? Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> it. Yeah, I mean that's it. You know? Yeah, that's, uh, So um, that's my my sort of thing that you know. Hopefully there won't be another pandemic. So <laughs> let's hope. So uh, I'll have to find some time, uh, other other ways to, to yeah. do it. But um, speaking of books, one of the things that I love to ask, and this is a purely selfish question that I ask of all of our guests, is: Are there any books that you love? Um, you know, and it could be of any any genre. It doesn't have to be about travel. Do you have a favorite book or a favorite couple books? And it's okay if you don't as well. Yeah, I'm pretty rubbish actually because I do. I, I go through phases of actually reading loads of books, and then, sure. I, and then I, I I don't read books for a long time. Yeah. and it's I think it's tied into sort of work and you're busy. And sort of, yeah, exactly. Because yeah, you know, sometimes it's quite nice to have a little read of an evening. But um, yeah, so I can't really think of any sort of particular. I mean, I enjoy I enjoy all sorts of books. You know, yeah. I enjoy novels. I enjoy you know books about automotive. I enjoy photography books. Sure. So um, yeah, I wouldn't probably say there's any particular book that I would sort of. I wish I could sort of go. Oh yeah, you. Everyone needs to read this one after. <laughs> sure. After sort of. Well, they need to read the Camel Trophy book. Oh, exactly. So, yeah, start there and then, and then uh, yeah, work down, work up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Nick, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. It, it, it is a genuine pleasure. When I first started the podcast with Matt Scott. I made a list of what we considered to be dream guests to have on this podcast. And you were on that list. So we have, very much. we both have tremendous um, admiration for the work that you do. The quality of your photography is uh, inspiring for me Thank as you. a photographer. Um, and then you're also very well-traveled and you've, you've become a master of your craft and to have such a storied a storied career, starting with Land Rover, well, starting at 13, writing your first book, which is so impressive in and of itself, to participating in the Camel Trophy and driving around the world with Land Rover. 
what a gift your life has been for sure. Yeah, it's funny. Isn't it? We were just talking. I'm, so I'm 50 this year. Yeah. And uh, I mean, for a start, I can't. I can't believe I'm 50. <laughs> I can't believe I've got two children. It'll be okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so I, I went through that. I went, I went through that. Yeah, in exactly. December of last year. So yeah, but two children, right. 17 and 14. I yeah. Where that went, you know. They, I remember when they were you know, this. Yeah. This this big. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, life does go like that, which is, I guess, is a reminder just to. Made the most of it, you know. Do, and you have do those do those travel dreams. You know, I'm yeah. obviously very fortunate, and I've been uh, been able to go and travel and explore. You know, sort of and do do many things that you know people have. Uh, That's right. Would love to do, but uh, equally, you know, I always feel there's something else reaching out there. I think you know everyone's a bit restless to to go and see more, and you know the world's even though the world's a small place, it's a big place, and I it think is. There's a lot to see. People should definitely uh, make the most and explore. Well, like, we just, exactly, like we just yeah, did, absolutely. In the deserts of of the UAE, looking yeah, out exactly. into Oman to the to the side, they're amazing. How do people find out more about you? You have a great Instagram account. Yes, so yeah, so I have. Um, I'm I am pretty poor on social media. I've just basically got Instagram. That's good. So, That's good. <laughs> so yeah, Nick, what's your account? So Nick Dimbleby at Nick Dimbleby is my um, account. So N I C K Dimbleby D I M B L E B Y. Okay. I have a website which I should really update. It's quite old now. It's about probably seven or eight years old. Yeah. Um, but there's yeah lots of my other work there. Some of the the non Land Rover. Um, so the and what's your stuff. website? Uh, it's also it's nickdimbleby.com. All right, perfect. And yeah, that's it. Really, that's that's, uh, that's well. That's I would suggest online presence. I would suggest that people follow your Instagram account. Just watching to the lead up to this trip, seeing these. Images of the 130 in the dunes. It certainly got my appetite built. So yeah, it's always I always find it difficult to know what to, to put on there because I've obviously got a, a huge back catalogue of stuff. Yeah, sure, but it's that thing. I think well, maybe I need to be putting on some my current stuff, but I sort of occasionally bring out some of the old stuff as yeah. well. I think it's one of those things. I just sort of uh, I just need to mix and mix it up a bit. But I few, think people enjoy that. Yeah, exactly. They seem like, occasionally put a little bit of some of the stuff I shot on film. You know, scan yeah. that in and, and put it on. So. Yeah, I guess if you if you like Land Rovers, <laughs> then probably my, uh, yeah. my Instagram is probably a good place to go. It will be. <laughs> Nick, thank you again so thank much you, for being on the, on the podcast. And we thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, my friend.